Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of FNS Unplugged. I'm your co-host, Pietro Bordoletto, and I'm joined with the, the four legs of the tripod, the chair. I don't know what the right way to describe this is, but we've got to come up with something. Dr. Blake Evans, Dr. Dalen James, and Dr. Molly Cornfield. How is everyone? So great to see everyone. Happy to be here. Dalen, you look average. Uh, you look fine. We're as the holiday approaches, but it's lovely to be with all of you. And I'm really delighted to have uh, some special guests. It's always nice to have some real talent on the show. To yeah, it's about time some real uh, clinicians and researchers actually show up and talk about their science and give us all a break. We have illustrious guests today. Um, we have guests that coming from the Consider This section of articles from FNS. And rather than let me uh, introduce, I want to let Molly tell us a little bit more about this article, but also introduce our two special guests to the podcast today. Thanks so much, Pietro. So the Consider This piece I chose this month is called The Growing Role of Private Equity in Fertility, a Measured View. And I'm so excited to have both of the authors of this piece with us today, Drs. Jane Zhu and Paula Amato, who are both at my home institution of Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. So Jane and Paula, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for inviting us, Molly. Yeah, thank you. Well, I'd love to start with a brief summary of your article, and please interrupt or correct me if I don't do it justice, and then we can chat about it a little bit more. So in this piece, uh, Jane and Paula open by citing the rapid expansion of private equity into women's health, and specifically the fertility uh, sphere. They cite that at this point, 29% of ART cycles in the US are at practices with a private equity affiliation. The article defines private equity as using capital from investors to invest in a clinic, and then the investors sell these holdings a few years later, usually with pretty substantial profits. Private equity has been increasingly and especially interested in fertility practices, as it's such a high demand specialty and then often has better profits than other women's health specialties. The article, as it states in its title, has a measured or balanced approach going over some of both the advantages and the disadvantages of private equity expansion into the fertility sector. Some of the advantages they touch on, among others, are an investment in clinic improvements and clinic expansion, and then through this expansion, consolidation to centralize administrative efforts and reduce costs. Some of the disadvantages may include incentivizing practices to prioritize self-paid patients over insured patients to maximize profits, or focusing on centralizing these clinics really in the higher income areas. So the authors question whether this private lean and private equity lean has the potential to improve access or improve IVF success and quality of care and cite some supportive and some mixed data regarding this. And then the impacts on fellow training and research in the field really has yet to be determined. So definitely check out the article to get the full story. Um, it's a well-written piece that's much more than what I said, but I'd love to start in on the author's perspective since we have them here today. So first of all, Jane or Paula, what inspired you to write this article? Well, I think I was the one who reached out to Jane first. And you may or may not know, Dr. Zhu is one of the leading experts on private equity in healthcare. And she happens to be at OHSU where I work. So I've been following actually her writing for quite a while. 
And my initial sense about private equity and in, in infertility, which, as you said, is almost impossible to ignore, right, and affects all of us, was that it was kind of a negative thing. And I was following a lot of the writing and other aspects of healthcare, and that was the sense I got. So I reached out to Jane. I said, Jane, you're an expert in this area. This is going on and in infertility, which, of course, she was well aware of. And I go, this doesn't sound good. And she's like, well, you know, fertility is a little bit different than these other areas of medicine. And actually, there have been some studies that show that actually success rates go up when a practice is acquired. So it just got me uh, interested in writing something about this. And I, I asked her if she was interested in collaborating on something to try and educate other people in our field. And she graciously said yes. Jane, if you have anything yeah. to add. I mean, it was uh, it was super fun to write about private equity with someone who works in fertility, who is very, very uh, knowledgeable about the space. And so it was, it was a perfect melding of the minds. I'll just say, you know, fertility, Paul already mentioned, is, is really unique from some of the other specialties that we've looked at in our research. Unlike a lot of other specialties, there's price and quality, transparency. There's really less government intervention because there's so much payment or a, the, a large portion of um, of uh, patients are cash pay or commercial payment um, rather than Medicaid or Medicare. There's a lot more reliance on sort of consumer choice uh, as well. And and I think part of that has, has sort of uh, motivated some of the heavy investment uh, in fertility by PE uh, firms. And so this makes it you know, especially interesting to study. The other, I think, difference in in infertility is that we have data on outcomes that you have all collected and that that is publicly available. And that makes it just a very unique field to study because outcomes quality is very, very hard to study in general. That's already readily available um, in, in this field. And I'll put a plug at ASRM this year. My center, Boston IVF, which is a private equity backed academic practice, published and won a prize for a paper looking at the effect of private equity backed mergers on clinical outcomes. And what does the small clinic that's being acquired, how does being acquired by a big private equity backed clinic either improve their outcomes, improve clinic throughput, change the patient mix? And I think you guys got it exactly right. There actually is a net positive for patients from some of these private equity mergers that people traditionally think are all negative and bad for patients. But a rising tide does lift all ships, and there's lots of good data to support some of that. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, though, the, the data is pretty scarce uh, overall. I mean, we're basing a lot of this, you know, our conclusions and 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 observations in our, in our consider this piece is really based on what private equity is doing in other fields, which, you know, though there's not a lot of conclusive evidence yet, there is across the board evidence that as soon as private equity comes into a practice, raises healthcare prices and spending, that there may be changes to staffing mix, that there are mixed evidence on quality. And in nursing homes in particular, that's where a lot of the more negative findings have been um, sort of uh, brought to light is uh, around increases in mortality and antipsychotic medication prescription in reductions in nursing home frontline staffing. So the evidence we have, it's really specific to each field, I would say. And so the evidence that is, uh, exists in fertility is really based off a few few studies. But I wanted to just point out one particular study. It's a, it's a study by Amber LaForgia and Julia Bodnar. They're in the management and business space. So she's at Berkeley Haas, the lead study author. And this is what we reference um, uh, a few times in our piece. They basically take 
a bunch of hand-picked fertility clinics that were acquired by chains. And chains are not just private equity-owned, but can be corporate-owned in general. And they look at what happens to IVF cycles and live birth rates and essentially find that after fertility clinics are acquired by these large chains, there's evidence that both the volume of cycles and live birth rates increase, like immediate effects. And uh, there's not the same effects that they find when fertility clinics are simply uh, affiliated with a larger chain. It's really the acquisition that conveys some of these effects, suggesting that there's some knowledge sharing, you know, and resource sharing that happens. They also don't find any evidence of patient selection, meaning like it's not that they're picking you know, harder patients or easier patients uh, to, to, to treat, there's no real changes in the patient selection. The, the effects are really at the care delivery side. So I think that's really the, the biggest and most robust study that um, I've seen in the fertility field around these outcomes. That means that we had a lot of room for improvement. They may have been starting off at an underwhelming clinical outcome, um, and we've kind of caught them up to what average looks like. Yeah, I think in general, that's what the data shows so far. But this issue about patient selection, I think, is still controversial. I think the paper that Jane mentions does a good job trying to rule that out. But it's not inconceivable that, you know, pregnancy rates would increase because you're dealing with a select population. So I think, you know, time will tell and more research will tell. Maybe both things are true, right? I'm sure there is some sharing of knowledge and best practices, but it's also possible that these patients are less complex than maybe what you would find in a non-private equity owned practice. Right. We definitely see that in other specialties. Hospitals, for example, who've been purchased by private equity, they show a, a shift towards commercial populations away from Medicaid and Medicare populations. So there are, I think, yet inconclusive, but but really telling signs of where profit or the, the search for profit may lead to some care delivery shifts for sure. And the other issue, like an increase in volume of cycles, would suggest that there's increased access to patients, which sounds like a good thing. And I, and I think that's partially true. But if that also includes an increase in prices, then, you know, who is getting more access to these cycles? So I think that hasn't quite been borne out in the literature yet either. I'm curious in, in your research for this piece, did you guys come across anything in regards to physician perspective in terms of these private equities uh, taking over? For example, a lot of practices are kind of a melting pot of different practice styles and techniques. And although that may not change patient outcomes, so to speak, whether we trigger with 5,000 of HCG versus 2,500 along with a Lupron dual trigger, is there any sense of physician perspective on having to kind of conform to these different practice patterns? I'll defer to Jane on that. My my evidence is mostly anecdotal. And from what I hear is in practices that have been acquired by private equity, there's a lot of pressure to homogenize the, the practice. So I would say less individualistic. Yeah, um, just to sort of piggyback on that, we are, it's actually currently under review, so we can't really talk about this too much, but we surveyed ACP, so American College of Physician membership around their viewpoints around private equity ownership versus other corporate phones or forms of ownership versus, you know, hospital um, and independent uh, practice ownership. And we definitely see some signs 
that there are changes to practice patterns, although those look different across the physician respondents, which may suggest that you know these these practices are really doing their own thing, and then the impact of a different of a change in ownership there is variability there. There's heterogeneity as we would expect uh, in terms of what levers can be pulled. I have not seen anything, and we're not specifically looking at you know within fertility, but I think that those are really good questions to be asked. I think that's one way that you improve throughput, right? Is if you get people to practice in a more similar fashion, makes the nursing care easier, makes the ordering of medications easier. My question for you, Paula, is not only is there kind of pressure from a increasing cycle, hopefully also improving um, clinical outcomes that comes from private equity. What about that pressure for more doctors? I think the the recurring theme that we hear is that there are not enough REIs. There's definitely not enough embryologists. What role do you think this private equity backed growth in our field could also contribute to training more doctors and having more programs involved in, in, in the fellowship and expanding the number of spots at some of these really high volume practices like the RMAs, the Boston IVFs of the world? Yeah, I think it remains to be seen. Definitely the demand is there right now and they're appears to be a shortage of, you know, reproductive endocrinologists, at least to, to perform some of these procedures. So I think what we will see is maybe some of the procedures, some of the tasks being done by perhaps advanced practice providers, perhaps general OBGYNs. I know this is very controversial in our field, but in order to meet the demand, you know, you can only increase fellowship slots so much, and that's only going to help so much. If you really want to increase volume, then you you might need to look at some of these alternatives. Can I just ask a naive maybe question? But like, is this what I'm hearing is that this isn't bad for patients. It isn't bad for patient care, but it's almost like accidental that the interests are aligned or that standardization, while it may be perceived as being about an economical gain, it can also benefit the patient and efficacy and efficiency. But my question would be like two things. One, uh, you're always, you know, trying to squeeze every dollar, right, in the private equity paradigm. So this is a moving target. And once you, you know, stabilize or at whatever point, isn't there always the potential for it to go off uh, that path or to not so much be a, a mutually aligned interest there? And I guess the, the question here then is like, what are the guardrails? Like, say if you had come after this analysis and found, oh, wow, this is really bad for patients. Is it too late? Is it genie out of the bottle? What we have to culturally kind of reverse this? Who who's gonna fix it if it does go off off track? I will toss that question to Jane. I don't know from other specialties if that have been doing this for longer than fertility. What have you seen? Yeah, I mean, I so a couple of notes in response to your question. First, I'm not sure that it's absolutely 100% clear that there's no harm to patients, as I mentioned. In other fields outside of fertility, that data has been a little bit more robust, that there are potential harms, and that's part of why there's so much concern from the part of policymakers and other providers or physicians in, in particular. The second point is that the PE model in and of itself, as you bring up, introduces new incentives that other, you know, for example, nonprofit hospitals, I mean, I, I don't want to be so naive as to say like uh, other hospitals and, and physician um, practice ownership don't have profit as their economic model. Everybody wants to make profit. But the PE model is a little bit different in that in the way that it's structured. First, PE is very much reliant on highly leveraged purchases, which means that most of these purchases 
that they make in the physician practice or um, healthcare space are loaded with debt. That debt is loaded onto the practice itself. So that is a very different model than in other um, acquisitions and mergers. And combine that with the fact that PE is expecting for its investors, uh, on average, 20% profits annually under a short time period, three to eight years on average before they're deciding to sell. They're not holding these companies for long periods of time. They're holding on to them, trying to extract value or in, increase the size of the pie as quickly as possible in order to sell that asset eventually. And so these um, on the surface value, you know, uh, definitely, you know, introduce other, you know, you can think about other incentives that are at play here that make it a very different uh, entity to for for physicians to deal with than than other corporate ownership um, per se, um, particularly when other corporate owners are looking to stay on board for much longer periods of time. And in our research, we've shown that you know in dermatology, ophthalmology, GI, for example, the average length of time that PE stays um, with the practice is about three three years, three and a half years. Acquisitions that have ha occurred in the past five years, and they usually the majority of those. Um, practices are then sold to other PE firms. How do they do that? So they do that because they the way that they can generate continued profits is really through a model of growth right now. So it's through consolidation. Um, uh, obviously, they're doing other things in terms of practice alignment, efficiencies, um, you know, uh, coding and revenue cycle management that makes things operate, um, you know, in a more smooth fashion. But they're also growing really, really fast. They're consolidating practices and in consolidation, they can generate economies of scale. They can negotiate, you know, have negotiating leverage against insurers. Uh, there's a lot of benefits for having scale. And we see that with sort of the optums and the CVSs and the and the Amazons of the world, um, you know, obviously. So um, they're taking advantage of those models. And so I think um, all of those things to say that um, there's a lot still unknown, but I think I think to paint PE as a bogeyman is is a little bit, <laughs> um, you know, so oversimplistic. There there are good actors and bad actors in PE firms, but the model itself is such that it is pushing different types of effects that you might not see elsewhere. And I think we need to keep that in mind as we as we think about PE a little bit further in the healthcare sector. I agree. I think it's a good question, Dalen. Uh, I would say the the gist of our piece is that. There's good and bad. It may be good for patients in some ways, but you know, we can't ignore the fact that the profit incentive may interfere with the patient-physician relationship and clinical decision making. And, and we have to be, as a field, I think, aware of that. And I think there has to be more research done. There definitely has to be more transparency. Um, and if we find out that, you know, overall, I don't think we're going to stop this train, you know, it's it's happening whether we like it or not. Uh, but if we find out that ultimately it's, you know, a net negative, then yeah, we'll have to respond in, in some way. And I don't know what the answer is to that, maybe more physician control over some of the decisions, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, we have, um, you know, from a policy lever, we have ongoing studies and, and research but primarily one of the, the first policy levers is just transparency and ownership. The Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services have recently introduced nursing home transparency ownership, partially driven by these results, you know, the empirical evidence suggesting nursing home ownership types really matter in terms of quality and delivery of care. 
Um, but the same has not been introduced for physician practices. And I'll just say like even studying this is a, uh, a gargantuan task because we have to manually go through each of these acquisitions, verify them, validate them across websites. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a really hard thing to study. And, and just to, you know, um, as, a, as a starting point, having transparency over, over who owns what and when do those shifts occur uh, is, is, I think, only going to be beneficial um, uh, for everyone involved. That was also well said. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. A lot to think about. All of our listeners, please check out this article uh, and then some of the works that you guys cite as well, I think would be really interesting to read. So thank you so much, Jean and Paula. And thank you for writing this piece that we could talk about today. Thanks for having us. It was a pleasure to be the managing editor of this piece and triage it to two um, experts in the field who are private equity minded reproductive endocrinologists. I think you can probably figure out who they are. There's not too many of them in our field. They love this piece. They thought it was insightful. It was well done um, and kind of did the right amount of beating up, but also the right amount of kind of highlighting the existing evidence. So thanks for sending it to consider this. Thank you all. All right. So we're going to segue into an entirely different topic, but the title of my paper is Fertility Outcomes with ART Following Fertility Sparing Treatment for Endometrial Neoplasia, a Systematic Review. First author, Elizabeth Mangusso, and senior author, who is a friend of mine and colleague that graduated fellowship the same year as me, Audrey Mercedi out of Emory. Going to dive into a little bit of background regarding this topic. Endometrial cancer is the fourth most common cancer among females in the U.S., with over 65,000 new cases diagnosed in 2022, for example, in the United States. Most of these cases are diagnosed in women in their 60s, but 5% are less than 40 years of age, which is, of course, of interest to us in our field. The incidence of EIN, or endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia, in patients aged 30 to 39 has doubled from 2000 to 2017 with obesity, as you probably could guess, as the primary risk factor. Does that surprise any of you? No, it did not surprise me either. So as a uh, reference for the fellows, a, a little review, I think is very important in, in regards to this topic. Have obese patients, have a lot of aromatase activity in the adipose, so you're going to have testosterone to estrogen conversion because of all this adipose tissue, and this can suppress FSH, suppress follicle development, therefore suppress ovulation. So you're going to, in a sense, have unopposed estrogen for a long time. So years and years and years of this with anovulation can lead to increased risk of endometrial hyperplasia and therefore uterine cancer. So although hysterectomy is the most effective treatment for this, many patients that are reproductive age want fertility sparing treatment. So what do they mean by that? So that's mainly just systemic progesterone treatment, IUD, Megase, Provera, for example. Among patients with low-grade endometrial cancer, the clinical response is usually seen to in about 55 to 85% of patients with a mean time of four and a half to six months. And up to 82% with endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia have a clinical response. And then if no response is seen, so uh, basically, if the biopsies are negative after about 12 to 18 months, then definitive treatment is recommended. So given this, the authors wanted to review the literature on fertility outcomes for individuals using ART following fertility sparing treatments for endometrial neoplasia. So what did they do? They looked at 19 retrospective studies, five prospective, and one RCT evaluating patients 
with either complex atypical hyperplasia, endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia, or adenocarcinoma. And these patients underwent fertility sparing treatment. And they had a, a group or subgroup of patients who utilized ART, and they discussed pregnancy-related outcomes for the ART cycles or proportion of patients who utilized ART treatments. I will point out that some of these studies presented ART pregnancies cumulatively for different ART methods, and so therefore some of these studies do have pregnancies that are a result of a conception through ovarian stimulation with IUI cycles, for example. When you look at table one in this paper, most use Megase or Provera, for example, or progesterone IUD, but I will just point out that the treatment methods did vary a decent amount from paper to paper. So there was some heterogeneity in that regard. It's also important to note that the patients that they looked at had either EIN or a FIGO grade one carcinoma without myometrial invasion or extrauterine involvement. So they found that the rate of ART utilization ranged anywhere from about 40% to as high as 97% in these patients. So very clearly a highly utilized service for patients with these diagnoses. The percent of people who used ART to achieve a live birth ranged anywhere from 18% to 81%. So pretty wide range there. And it should come as no surprise, the biggest predictors of success were age less than 35 and endometrial thickness were the main things that they had, met, had noted. The authors discussed that a shorter time to IVF treatment as increasing likelihood of success, where for each month, I thought this was pretty interesting here, they found that each month of a decrease between the clinical response, so a, a negative biopsy, to the initiation of IVF, the live birth rate increased 6% with a p-value of 0.03. So I thought that was interesting. They also found that the live birth rate per transfer range anywhere from 20 to 38%. The authors discussed that cumulative live birth rate approached a level of what we'd actually expect in other age comparable groups pursuing IVF without these diagnoses. So that was reassuring to me to read. It's important to note that the authors state that half of these studies even reported the average age of patient and also the embryo stage at the, at the time of transfer. So two very important factors in regards to IVF success. So uh, that was just a caveat I wanted to mention in regards to this study. There was one study that they evaluated that showed that waiting at least three months from the discontinuation of progesterone therapy to starting IVF was associated with a more high quality embryo grade with an odds ratio of 3.6. So this was interesting too, because ultimately the authors are saying that we need to be proactive and do treatment quickly in these patients because of their diagnosis, get them to pregnancy and delivery, subsequent treatment more quickly. But balancing, okay, maybe we'll get some better quality embryos if we wait a few months after discontinuation of progesterone versus moving forward to treatment. So ultimately, the authors are suggesting based off of what available data we do have, we need to be a little bit more quick to treat rather than wait a few months in between therapy. And then also one of the most important findings of this review is that they conclude that pursuing fertility treatments does not appear to increase recurrence rates or mortality, which I think is the biggest Thing we need to take away from this. So in conclusion, the authors discuss the ART can be an effective treatment option for individuals who desire fertility following fertility sparing treatment for those who have EIN or um, adenocarcinoma. And again, providers need to be diligent in referring these individuals who are desiring pregnancy following fertility sparing treatment. We need to be very proactive, help them to achieve their goal, get them pregnant, and then deliver, uh, of course, with 
being in, in discussion with an oncologist as well and optimizing what is best for this patient, what is safest for this patient. And then just a couple of comments I wanted to mention. One thing I think it's important to consider is that the authors discuss, they do discuss this a bit as well, but we don't have sufficient evidence regarding whether or not to continue the cycle or do we cancel based off of the endometrial thickness. And we're talking about a patient population here that clearly has some or likely inherent issue with the endometrium. They have potential cancer in this situation. So consideration of issues with implantation, they've had a very long prolonged progesterone exposure. They've had potentially multiple DNCs, multiple biopsies, and how many of these exposures will affect outcomes. That's something that we don't have clear evidence of. And of course, this makes it quite heterogeneous scenario here too. There's a lot of factors regarding patient success. So um, ultimately, if someone has a really thin endometrium, given their situation, less likely to say, hey, we should cancel your cycle is, is kind of what I'm getting at. And also the last comment I think is important to mention, I'm, I'm uh, curious to hear y'all's thoughts too, is given that the cost and the general, uh, there's we obviously know there's a lack of care or a lack of access to care for IVF, kind of what we just discussed in regards to um, the, last, the last paper, potentially having a patient population here that's reflecting a demographic who has access to care, who has the means to pay for IVF. So there could be a big chunk of patients that we're not looking at in regards to this topic. So- what what are y'all's thoughts in regards to that? Can I just ask a, a clarifying question in terms of the the risk to the patient? You said that the ART did not increase uh, risk in terms of mortality or recurrence, but like, is there a fundamental risk for these patients choosing the fertility sparing versus more, I guess, radical or definitive treatments? Like, are they increasing their risk by by sparing their fertility as a baseline, or are these pre-malignant cancers very rarely progress to something that's, you know, more life-threatening. Yeah. So that's ultimately what they're saying is for those who, from at least from what they have available for them, you know, obviously they're looking at a limited amount of data here and what's available, but for those who ultimately decide I'm going to defer hysterectomy, I'm not going to have definitive treatment. I'm going to undergo ART and get pregnant, deliver a baby, then maybe have a hysterectomy afterwards. When they're looking at that overall scenario for what data we do have that's available, it doesn't show that there's a, an increased risk overall. Do you guys, are you, would you, I mean, what's your feeling about that in terms of patients who say, you know what, I want to, I don't want to undergo a hysterectomy. I mean, given the, the possibility of gestational carrier, what's your do you defer to the patient or do you encourage them to, to take a more definitive solution? I mean, I guess it's case by case, yeah. but uh, how do you feel yeah. about that, the outset, the, 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 the starting point here? Right. Very good point. I think it's definitely a shared decision. And this is, this is my opinion too. And, and uh, Pietro and Molly chime in too, but it's a shared decision-making process. The patient I think needs to have an in-depth conversation with the oncologist and know, Hey, Based off of this, we've been following your biopsies. They've been negative. You've been on progesterone treatment. This is, uh, for the most part, a pretty slow progressive hyperplasia or subsequently cancer. Getting pregnant and having a placenta that's going to be blasting progesterone into the uh, endometrium is going to be probably protective as well. So I think it needs to be a shared decision-making process. The patient's going to obviously be assuming some risk and, and knowing that there is a risk there. But at the end of the day, it's just having a very careful shared risk uh, dis discussion with the patient, I feel like. 
liked the article because of the piece about uh, that the progestins for three months before actually had a little bit worse IVF outcomes. And I am assuming those studies were oral progestins. I'll have to check back, but I think that kind of furthers the support. Sometimes the patients really don't want to have an IUD. They're like, I'm trying to get pregnant. Why are you putting in an IUD? Um, but we know that the Mirena IUD or even ergestrel IUD is a little bit more efficacious than oral progestins to treat this. And so I think that combined with saying, hey, and it's a little less suppressive, we have a little bit better outcomes. I think that adds a few more arguments uh, to using Mirena in these patients. The tricky part for me and kind of how I kind of approach this article is I, I co-direct the oncofertility program at Boston IVF. So I see a lot of these endometrial cancer patients who have these EINs, these very early pre-malignant lesions. Almost all of them are on a combination of Mirena IUD and Megase. They're by and large patients who are heavier from a BMI perspective. And they're kind of in that cycle of needing to get their uterus biopsied, getting the IUD replaced, see if they've cleared um, or kind of kept things kind of in a holding pattern. Almost all of these patients so far for me have all been patients who are just creating embryos and not quite at the point where they can use their uterus to become pregnant with. Like half of them are seriously considering a gestational carrier um, to be able to build their family. I think it's a unique scenario. It's expensive. It's not accessible. It takes time. Uh, but most of these patients are coming to see me for embryo creation. And the trickier part for me is how do I make sure that IVF is going to be safe for them while they have an active lesion? And curious to see, Molly and Blake, what you guys do. Are these I definitely leave these IUDs in, number one. I don't need a, a progestin IUD to come out during the stimulation. I have them come off their megase for two weeks um, and then have them come in for random baselines to kind of figure out where they are um, to be able to start them randomly, ludally, follicularly, but megase can be pretty suppressive. So you kind of need a bit of a washout period. Are you guys using letrozole continuously for these patients to really minimize this hyperestrogenic environment and the impact that that may have on their EIN or their, their estrogen-based pre-malignant endometrial cancer? Typically, yeah. Um, and of course, you guys know a lot of the data on, on octane and, and breast cancer and, and letrozole during STEM. And a lot of it is, is breast cancer. But but yes, in general, someone has a malignancy in our practice or cancer, you know, potentially higher risk of thrombophilia in a hyperestrogenic environment. Oftentimes, we have letrozole on board. Uh, at, at their STEM day three, estradiol is what we typically obtain in our clinic see what the estrogen looks like, did we dose them correctly, and then start letrozole. But we do typically in our practice. I started continuously right from the onset. Um, I know there's a lot of debate about do you trend estradiol levels on a 7.5 milligram daily dose of, of letrozole. I think the absolute number is a lot less informative, but the trend is still very helpful. If you're trying to figure out, is this patient flying off the rails? Um, seeing a, a E2 that's kind of doubling or tripling every 48 hours is sometimes just as informative of what the, is what the absolute number is. Um, but then also looking at what their P4 is doing. It's also very interesting to see when their P4 shoots up. You're like, oh my gosh, it's two and a half. They must, that estrogen level must be really high. So I, I use electrozole continuously for these patients, but curious to see if other people were doing different things. Blake, this was a great article, um, kind of a non-traditional topic for us. Uh, good for us to kind of get a refresher and figure out what the current state of affairs is. Thanks. Dalen, we're going to make a hard pivot from the reviews to the science. Tell us what you're bringing to the table this month from FNS Science. All right. I got a, a story maybe related, maybe a bit of a segue there about what happens after the intervention. But let's start with a bit of background here. One of the most glaring distinctions between male female reproduction is the reserve, right? And this difference 
has a profound impact, not just on like your reproductive health and longevity, but also by extension, uh, it shapes the kind of entire cultural societal framework uh, around that difference in reserve. For example, the language often used to describe women's reproductive reserve is really fatalistic, right? Women are born with all the eggs they'll ever have, or the biological clock is ticking. There's this real kind of looming pessimism surrounding it. I don't know. It's all very negative. So uh, losing one of your ovaries uh, is clearly a, a really big deal, right? And by contrast, men, they just keep those spermatogonia pumping until their very last breath. I mean, look at Al Pacino still having babies in his 80s. Uh, so what's it matter if you lose a testis? I mean, I'm not about to volunteer, but I mean to say that in regards to man's reproductive potential, half of forever is still forever, right? Uh, what do you guys tell your patients regarding potential impact of unilateral orchiectomy or oophorectomy on fertility? Is there a different counsel that you give to men and women in this regard? Typically, no, honestly. But what about you all? I tell them they can expect a little bit of compensatory hypertrophy in the testicle that remains may get bigger, uh, higher risk of varicocele development in that testicle. But men have so much wiggle room in their sperm counts that they can go from being great to good and still totally get the job done. Yeah, I'm not too optimistic. You know, I'm not overly optimistic. Like it's totally fine because I have seen uh, sperm counts pretty dismally affected by, especially if you've had surgery, uh, testicular torsion. Um, I've seen isospermia uh, related to complications from that. So even if they still have a testicle, it's not always perfect. Well, you are all very wise. I mean, and when you look at, at women where the situation should be more drastic, uh, a respective cohort study of roughly 20,000 Norwegian women who were included in this population-based HUNT-2 survey uh, was published about a decade ago in human reproduction. And that revealed that while menopause was accelerated uh, in women who had undergone unilateral oophorectomy, that acceleration was from like 50.7 years in those who had not had uh, oophorectomy to 49.6. So a difference of 1.1 years on average that uh, authors conclude, and I would agree, is not really clinically meaningful. And other studies have also shown that there's similar clinical pregnancy rates in women who have undergone unilateral oophorectomy versus others. Um, in males, uh, as you guys described, there's some complications related to, to torsion or, or injury or intervention. Um, in males that have undergone unilateral orchiectomy. And while there's an initial decrease in semen parameters in those patients, they recover after about a year, up to about levels of normal. So uh, it looks like the remaining testis is able to compensate, as uh, Pietro alluded to there, that compensatory hypertrophy. Um, but how it compensates, I think, is a really important question. And I'll tell you why. In the last couple of decades, uh, a correlation between increased paternal age and the prevalence um, of developmental disorders, including autism, has been noted. And I want to say, this is not really the authors putting it out, this out there, but this is what it got me thinking about, um, is this increased correlation. And what, one of the mechanisms behind that is thought that the spontaneous mutations that happen over a man's lifetime result in clones of increased fitness, right? And those clones expand within the testis, ultimately contributing to an outsized proportion of sperm in the ejaculate. Uh, the problem is that those same aberrations, uh, anomalies that increase their fitness and lead to this increased clonal uh, representation can have consequences for the conceptus, right? These are actual mutations. Um, Apert syndrome is a great example of this. So following that logic, 
an insult, and this is my logic, uh, but I'm not the only one thinking this, I'm sure. Uh, I just want to say it's not attributed to the authors. Following that logic, an insult that radically augments the growth of spermatogonia at some point during a lifetime, like the compensatory hypertrophy that you expect in the remaining testis following unilateral orchiectomy, could have implications for clonal spermatogenesis of potentially path pathologic uh, impact, right? So to address this, uh, the paper I chose from FNS Science uh, in this month's issue out in November, check it out. Lead author, Daniel Nassau uh, from the group of Ranjith Ramaswamy at the U, otherwise known as University of Miami, they looked into a mouse model of testicular loss to answer this question. They performed a pretty straightforward study, unilateral orchiectomy at adult prepubertal and neonatal stages. And it's worth a look at the figures in this paper just to see how they were able to make the cut on such a tiny little pup, although it did make me a bit sad. Um, but they measured the weight and length of the remaining testis in adulthood. And that's after at least six weeks post-orchiectomy in that adult time point when they were um, the, the SNP came uh, in, in adulthood. Um, they also measured uh, serum testosterone, FSH, and LH. Uh, what they found was that, yes, there was this compensatory hypertrophy uh, observed following the neonatal and the prepubertal orchiectomy, uh, and much more so when it was at the earliest stage, when the orchiectomy happened at neonatal, that hypertrophy was more pronounced. Uh, and there was no significant hypertrophy following orchiectomy in adulthood. Uh, looking at testosterone, FSH, no changes between them, although there was, in all the orchiectomy conditions, increased LH, with the author's reasons, was uh, necessary to sustain that eugonadal testosterone levels following loss of a, a whole testis. Bottom line, yes, looks like significant compensatory hypertrophy occurs specifically the younger that testis loss occurs. Does this mean that we should be more concerned about clonal spermatogenesis and or increased incidence of related syndromes in patients that undergo orchiectomy early in life? I, I don't think so. Um, but I do think that we have the technological capabilities to ask this question, to look at the sperm um, and calculate if clonal spermatogenesis is increased in individuals uh, that undergo unilateral orchiectomy, because yeah, I think that it does have profound implications and more knowledge is never a bad thing. So I don't know, you guys, what do you think? I doubt you're gonna be counseling your patients differently. You've never read a mouse study that changed your mind. But I will ask, nevertheless, in terms of the concepts, do you think that unilateral orchiectomy, again, I will ask, have you, are you already counseling your patients? Probably not a big deal. But do you think that, not that you'll counsel your patients differently, but do you think this is something that we need to look closer at? I'll always say yes, if you ask if we need more research and if we want to know more, of course we do. But it, it does, you know, I always want to jump off the mouse research and have it impact my clinical practice. And I think in the back of the, my mind, when someone says, oh yeah, I had an orchiectomy at eight versus 15, I might think of it a little bit different. Uh, may not change my management, uh, but I will. I might think of it a little bit different based on this paper. And I'm excited to see what kind of human studies we can come up with to confirm this. Yeah, a bit of a hard topic to... To, to study, you know, I suppose, and is this, and translating it into human, like to answer your question, you know, is, is someone who has an orchiectomy at eight versus 15 going to vary a whole lot? Are we able to, to measure uh, the effect of sperm down the road? Like, do we know, did that even have an impact on it? Obviously it's hard to know. And because you're looking at a prepubertal age versus postpubertal age, 
so uh, there's a a lot of questions to be answered and of course you know it does uh, raise potential concern to what to what degree does this hypertrophy do we need to be concerned about hard to say uh, if i were to answer your question now i would say it's not going to change how i'm <laughs> counseling patients but i agree with molly i mean there's always we always want to know more about these findings and does this have potential clinical implications but of course just studying the specific question in in humans is going to be difficult unless Daylon, you're volunteering but I mean, if i had a twin I would volunteer my twin because it's really important to control these types of things. All right. Since we're not taking any volunteers for unilateral orchiectomy, I think we can uh, pivot from the FNS science article. And big shout out to Ranjit Ramaswamy and the powerhouse team that he's put together, who's pumped out some really excellent basic science research, but also great translational research. And big ups to the U, my undergrad alma mater. We're going to make a hard pivot and come back to FNS reports uh, where we have a kind of bread and butter IVF paper that we sometimes don't get all the time. This is a paper entitled Comparing Reproductive Outcomes Between Conventional IVF and Non-Recommended ICSI in an Autologous Embryo Transfer Cycle. You heard this right, Non-Recommended ICSI. Daylon, you're probably sliding in your chair. You're coming from Cornell. We use ICSI all the time at Cornell. John Piero Palermo, ICSI, uh, first kind of describe ICSI. Uh, the ICSI thing is a slippery slope. I think depending where you are in the world, you see a lot more of it being used, a lot less of it being used in certain parts of the country, particularly in mandated state uh, markets where there's kind of strict rules for when you can and can't use it. This is a great article because it kind of puts a mirror up to our face and say, hey, you guys are sometimes using ICSI in a non-recommended fashion. Is it all net positive or is there some potential harm here? Um, so this is a nice article that looks at this overuse of ICSI phenomenon. So what does the ASRM say about ICSI? ASRM recommends against ICSI for unexplained infertility, for low egg yield, for AMA. There are very few reasons why the ASRM will recommend um, ICSI. Male factor, PGTM, in vitro maturation, and when you're using frozen eggs. Well, despite this recommendation, ICSI rates have increased over the last decade. They've gone from as low as 46% in the early 2000s to as high as 70 to 80% in the mid-20-teens, uh, despite no actual concurrent increase in male infertility. And also, if you look at the SART data, no improvement in post-fertilization outcomes among patients undergoing fresh embryo transfers during the same time period. So you have to ask yourself, are we just doing more ICSI and not getting a benefit from it? Or are we just doing more ICSI and also hurting outcomes from it? This is a great article for my buddy, Dr. Julian Gingold and his mentor, Dr. Sangeeta Jindal. Um, from Montefiore's uh, reproductive medicine program. They looked at 2014 to 2017 SART member clinic data, and they basically looked at embryos fertilized via ICSI that were classified on whether the ICSI was recommended, and they used a recommendation based on kind of two tiers. Was it recommended by the 2012 ASRM practice committee guidelines? And then applied a second definition, was the ICSI recommended by the 2020 ASRM practice committee guidelines? Because there was a changing definition here. In 2012, the guideline says you should use ICSI if there's a recorded history of male infertility, the cycle entailed PGT for some or all embryos, or the couple had experienced a prior fertilization failure. Any other indication? A non-indicated ICSI indication. 2020, the indication changed a little bit. They continued with the history of male infertility, continued with the couples experiencing prior fertilization. PGT definition changed a little bit. They said PGT was performed for single gene analysis only. And then they finally include HLA typing um, or known carrier state um, for the partner. So kind of an evolving definition. 
The primary outcome of this paper is looking at live birth rates. The secondary outcomes were clinical pregnancy rates and spontaneous abortion rates. And the outcomes were from transfers or expressed and analyzed on an intention to transfer basis um, to capture intended fresh cycles and intended embryo thaws that weren't resulting in, in transfers. In total, they had about 187,000 patients undergoing a total of 320,000 cycles. That's a lot of data. 18% of these cycles used conventional insemination, IVF, and 82% of them used ICSI. Among the ICSI cycles, according to the 2020 recommendations, 58% of them had an ICSI indication. And when you applied the 2020 uh, practice committee recommendations, that number was down to 41%. So here's the top line finding. Here's what they found when they kind of analyzed the SART data. Use of non-indicated ICSI and fresh cycles is associated with a reduced number of 2PNs and blasts available for transfer compared with conventional IVF. And this translated into reduced pregnancy and live birth rates with non-indicated ICSI during fresh cycles. What? What do you mean? ICSI is not all net positive. It can actually hurt some things. And that's what the SART data is suggesting. But in contrast, when you used ICSI with an indication, that was associated with more 2PN embryos, more blastocysts, and all of this resulted in a higher pregnancy and live birth rate compared with conventional IVF. Man, that really kind of pumps the brakes here, and we have to talk about this for a sec. Use ICSI when it's meant to be used. Using ICSI willy-nilly without a strong ASRM 2020 recommendation backed definition, you may be exposing your patients to some deleterious outcomes here. And I'll tell you, my practice changed pretty dramatically coming from Cornell as a fellow where we were, I think, um, ICSI happy is not the right word, but uh, ICSI accepting, um, coming to a mandated state like Massachusetts, where you have some rules around when to use ICSI. And our ICSI rates here at Boston IVF are right around 45 to 50%, much lower than what I experienced at Cornell. And we have some internal data that shows that when you do exactly this, the non-indicated ICSI cycles, you actually get worse outcomes. Conventional insemination is better for non-male factor cases. So it's really made me readdress kind of my practice pattern, my counseling patients. Say, oh, my morphology is 3%. Doc, do you think I should do ICSI? Eh, maybe not. Uh, maybe no. I don't know. Um, but if you're your counts are real low, your mortality is really underwhelming, or you kind of have a pan-positive semen analysis, yeah, the Nixley is a slam dunk. It's been the number one game changer to move the needle for male factor infertility. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of babies born from ICSI that otherwise would not have been born to overcome kind of real severe male factor infertility. So top line takeaway here is use it when it's indicated, be cautious when it's not, because you may actually be introducing some harm. Yeah, a couple thoughts. I mean, this is a, I feel like a timely discussion too, because you all just recently discussed on the FNS on Air podcast about how ICSI can even increase risk of congenital anomalies as well. You guys just recently discussed that, right, Pietro? And so, the, you know, this is a timely uh, discussion on this too. And, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of using a lot of ICSI as well, but how many more of these studies need to come out before we, we really do start turning back the dial? Because I know a lot of REI physicians use ICSI very commonly. And, and one thing too, I was just looking at the, how they categorize the diagnoses. They have it kind of lumped together as diagnosed with male infertility and then no male infertility. And then they, then they discuss too, that they factor, they adjust for certain things like this, like ovulatory disorders, tubal factor, endometriosis, diminished ovarian reserve. But one thing that I'm just curious about too, is unexplained infertility. And they don't discuss the percentage of those. I know that that's not a 
uh, technically an ASRM indication for unexplained infertility. But if you poll the REIs across the country, a lot of them will, will in fact do it. I know we've discussed this in the past about uh, that Johnson et al. study out of University of Penn number needed to treat to avoid fertilization failure and unexplained fertility is just five. And so knowing that a lot of REIs will do ICSI for unexplained. I know, of course, I'm not speaking for everyone, but I wonder how big of a chunk that is in this paper. And maybe I had glanced over it, correct me if I'm wrong, or if it is in fact in there, but I'm just curious the percentage of these patients that are not male infertility, how many are unexplained infertility? I'd have to look. I don't know that number off the top of my head. And, and I say this too, because you know, there's a little bit of a fear of not doing ICSI and unexplained fertility is there, but I feel like that's that's kind of what it is, is where uh, I personally am a bit of a chicken to do conventional insemination and unexplained fertility. I know, again, I'm not speaking for all REIs, but having to make that phone call and telling someone, hey, uh, I know you have unexplained fertility. I know that we have data showing number needed to treat is just five to avoid for failure. Um, I know ASRM says that that overall doesn't improve live birth rates, but none of your eggs fertilized. Uh, man, that's just not a phone call I enjoy making. And I know the patients don't enjoy hearing that. And at that time, in that moment, they wonder, why do we not do ICSI? <laughs> so these are just thoughts I have. I'm not I'm not trying to uh, go against this paper and what it's saying, but these are just thoughts of coming off the top of my mind. So what, what do you guys think? Yeah, I agree that we should try to limit ICSI. It's more expensive. It can introduce more epigenetic changes. It's additional micro manipulation of the embryo, which involves some risk as well. Uh, but it's it's hard to talk yourself out of ICSI in a lot of cases. And I think I'd love to see more data on mild male factor. As Pietro mentioned, if I have 3% morphology, what do I do in that situation? Looks like maybe Pietro was doing conventional FERT, but I'm a little nervous about that sperm. And 3% morphology might be 0% next week. So uh, when there is a male factor, I'm very, very inclined to want to do XC. Well, to follow up on Blake's point, I bet he's not alone. I, I saw all you guys nodding your head there in terms of nobody wants to make that call. So like in terms of dialing it back, it's not going to happen unless there's a mandate. Would you agree? I think a lot of it depends on who's paying for the IVF cycle. I think the minute you have rules and regulations that are kind of evidence-based and kind of put some guardrails on your decision-making, you tend to follow the data, and I use data loosely, uh, and kind of keeps you kind of in those, on the straight and narrow. But if you're in a market where patients are bringing a lot of money to the table of their own and want one good IVF cycle or can afford one good IVF cycle, you're a lot more inclined to throw the kitchen sink at it and do all of the interventions. I will raise this issue with you both because I think we miss, we just think it's ICSI, but it's not just ICSI. There's a little bit of a ripple effect when you do ICSI. As soon as those eggs come out, if you're doing ICSI, you're going to be stripping cumulus cells within a few hours um, to be able to evaluate maturity and, and do injection. And if you're doing conventional insemination, those cells get to stay on overnight. And what's the additional benefit to that patient of keeping those supporting cumulus cells, keeping those gap junctions in place for that egg for an additional 24 hours versus just a few. I think on the whole, it probably doesn't affect things a lot, but for some patients who have more underwhelming egg quality or just older eggs, that may be a big difference. And sometimes the conventional insemination and resisting the urge to add an intervention like ICSI um, may be helpful there. I've had situations where I've had patients with just poor blast development, poor maturity rates, that I've done ICSI on a first cycle and, you know, walked back the ICSI, which is an even tougher conversation. What do you mean? I don't need to do ICSI anymore. And I kind of explained the rationale that I'd like to keep these cumulus cells on overnight and see if I can move the needle here. And I think there's something there that probably warrants a little bit further study. I know there's been a lot of data on delayed cumulus stripping and the effect of that, but 
really drilling down on these patients who have already demonstrated a poor for poor maturity, poor blast development, um, rather than kind of the general population. I think the general population doesn't stand to benefit from delayed cumulus stripping, but some patients might, and ICSI really forces your hand on not being able to do that. I mean, all great points, all very excellent points. What am I going to do tomorrow when I'm setting up a protocol for IVF and a patient with unexplained fertility? You probably guessed it, but maybe for the next month, I'll not do ICSI and then I'll come back next month on the podcast and let you guys know if I sincerely regret that decision or not, or I'll have Pietro call any patients with FERT failure. How's that sound? Listen, I've just blamed their insurance. I'm sorry your insurance won't allow us to do it. It's going to cost you X thousand dollars out of pocket. Uh, I think we can uh, try this first cycle without it and see how things go. Um, I'm an Oklahoma man. Insurance and IVF don't make sense together. Yeah, that's a shame. I think it is, uh, it, it is a shame, really. The mandates can be helpful. And I think this is a situation where um, sure. it's helpful to have someone else to blame. There's another boogeyman. <laughs> Sounds like the answer is to have our embryologists do 50-50 on all our cases, 50% ICSI, 50% conventional for just cover our bases. Embryologists are going to be sending us hate mail over that. But Yeah, we 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 did that at our at OU before I got here. And, and the uh, the word was that the embryologists did not like it. They hated it. <laughs> well, it's double the work. Well, well, listen, it sounds like we could probably talk about ICSI all night. And maybe we will someday. And we should invite Dr. Palermo to come uh, convince us otherwise. I want to thank you guys for awesome articles, Molly, for inviting really wonderful guests to join us. There's there's so much good science coming out in FNS um, and family journals. A lot of good stuff on the internet that you guys should be checking out beyond this podcast. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, make sure you, you see us. That's a great way to keep up to date with the visual abstracts that we're publishing. That's all the time we have for today. Uh, we'll see each other next time. Same place, same time, same place where you get your podcasts. Until then, bye-bye. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This podcast is produced by Dr. Molly Cornfield and Dr. Adriana Wong. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.